Is it wrong to want proof of a miracle? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. Brian, we are looking at a new passage today. We are past the week of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are now in the post-resurrection time, and this is exciting. Yeah, we're in this 50 days or so between the resurrection and the ascension. And it's a good passage. We're, we're going to be looking at, at Thomas, uh, where first of all, where Jesus appears to disciples without Thomas, and then when he appears to Thomas. And I think we've talked about it on other episodes before, but um, my, my intention is to be a little bit sympathetic toward Thomas, and sometimes he gets a bad rap, and I, th- I think we need to be a little bit kinder to him. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are looking at John 20 verses 19 through 29 today. And uh, because it's nice and short passage, I thought we'd go ahead and read that. So, um, and since you prefer (laughs) when I do that, as opposed to when you do that, uh, I will kick us off. So when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the marks of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's where we get doubting Thomas from, even though... Notice that John, I think, is being sympathetic toward his friend and clued us into what nickname we should give him. And it's not doubting, it's twin. Um, But, you know, most Mm -hmm. people we know of Thomas is doubting Thomas because of this. But again, we're going to get to it in a minute. Does he deserve some grief? Yeah, I think so. But as much as we give him, probably. yeah, I don't think as much as we tend to give him. Yeah. So, all right, Brian, so thinking about this passage, what questions should we be asking? Well, I think the first one pops up in, in verses 21 and 22. Now, this is John's version of the Great Commission, basically. If you, if you look at what Jesus says in 21 through 23, it's very similar to the Great Commission as Matthew records. Um, so that can, this is kind of his version of it. 
but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And in 21 and 22, you'll notice that it says, Jesus says, peace to you as the Father sent me. I also send you. Um, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the question begs itself, did Jesus give them the Holy Spirit here? Um because we also know what happens in, in Pentecost, Acts 1, is when they receive the Holy Spirit, and Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So as we mm-hmm. read this in the full counsel of Scripture, as we understand where it goes from here, this kind of at least raises an eyebrow and, and that question, wait a minute, what's going on here? So it's not hard. We have two different options, binary, yes or no. So some would say, yes, Jesus did give the Holy Spirit here. It was a temporary filling to get the disciples up to Pentecost or just short of it. This is probably the majority view. As as I was prepping for this episode, just kind of going through a a survey of of several commentaries, it seems like this is the one where they probably land on most often. Yeah, temporarily giving the Holy Spirit, because again, the permanent giving of the Holy Spirit was, it was at Pentecost, Acts 1. The second option, though, mm-hmm. is no, uh, this, Jesus did not give them the Holy Spirit here. This was merely symbolic of what would happen. Now, for full disclosure, I lean this way myself. Does it really mm-hmm. matter? No, it really doesn't matter when it's all said and done. But again, it's, it's worth us thinking through. So I kind of lean this direction. The the concerns with option one from somebody who says, no, Jesus did not give them the Holy Spirit here. There are two concerns. First of all, there's really no evidence that they needed the Holy Spirit or had the Holy Spirit after this. Right after this, John records them going fishing, you know, just this nonchalant, let's go fishing. It doesn't seem like they're being spirit driven Uh, between this and Pentecost, the little bit of of, uh, information we have about them. The second concern is this. Well, Thomas wasn't present. Did he not get the Holy Spirit then? So there are a couple of questions at least to kind of give pause. But then if you look at, at the context around verse 22, what do you see? Verse 21, Jesus talks about the future. I send you. Of course, he wasn't sending them then. He does not send them until after Pentecost. So they, he's looking at the future. It's a, it's a statement in the present speaking of the future. And in verse 23, we're going to talk about it in a minute, when Jesus talks about their ability to forgive and and not forgive, again, that's a future thing. So you have future, this verse 22, giving the Holy Spirit, and then future again. So the context seems best to see that as, as the future then, that Jesus is not giving the Holy Spirit here. He's speaking of what would happen in the future. And if you think about what happens at Pentecost... What do you have? You have the spirit descending with the sound like a rushing wind. Jesus breathed, made a sound like a wind, probably to give them some kind of clue what would happen. So at Pentecost, maybe they drew back in their recollection to this encounter, remembered the sound Jesus made when he breathed on them. You have the Holy Spirit descending and helping them understand what's going on here. So again, that's that's a lot of ground to cover for something that's not really critically important. But did Jesus give them the Holy Spirit? No. Majority, again, probably would say yes, temporarily. But then there are some, mm-hmm. like, again, I lean this way, who would say, no, maybe not. Maybe this was symbolic of what would happen. Sure. And and I think, honestly, I would probably lean in that direction as well. 
um, largely just because of the, um, actually because of Matthew's gospel. Um, so remember at the end of that as well, when Jesus is, is about to ascend uh, back to the Father, um, they go to the mountain, the disciples are there with them. It's not just the 12, it's many disciples, um, and it says that they were there, they worshiped the Lord, but some yeah. doubted. And so it's like, I, I, I mean, not that people with the Holy Spirit, not that, you know, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, or if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't doubt. I mean, I'm not saying that. Yeah. Um, so don't hear what I'm not saying, people. <laughs> yeah, but. I mean, and that's the thing is, I, I don't see much evidence that they were following the Spirit or living the Spirit. Now, again, I want to be careful there because somebody could rightly push back and say, yeah, but the Holy Spirit is also a source of comfort. And maybe this was an act of compassion that Jesus was providing the Holy Spirit temporarily for them for no other reason than to comfort them and help them. And that could be. I mean, that's a, that would be a good argument for be. a temporary filling. But again, I, I just look at it. You and I, it sounds like we're on the same page. You kind of look at it, and it just feels more like this is looking forward to what would happen at Pentecost. A little bit. And a lot of John's gospel, the language is present-day present statements that are looking forward. That's a good forward. point. So, so it kind of fits with his, with his writing style. So um, another question, though, that we should be asking is actually one connected to verse 23 itself, which is... Um, because there he says, you know, wh whomever you forgive will be forgiven. Whoever sins or retain, um, retains their sins, they'll be retained, that kind of thing. Um, did Jesus mean that the disciples themselves had the power to forgive sin? And the answer is no. No, Jesus did not mean that because we know that only God forgives sin. Only and always is that is that the case. This has um, more to do with the uh, having the authority to acknowledge the salvation of those who have trusted in Christ, to recognize people as having been forgiven by God of their sins. Um, so this is, in other words, it's to accept people into the church. And this is one of those things that, um, people, not like so, and, and in that, I'm saying unbelievers, I'm saying believers, I'm saying churches in their local expressions, um, we often minimize the significance of this, this kind of, this kind of passage, this, uh, this passage and this kind of thinking um, that is itself connected to Matthew 16, 19, which says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you lose you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven this idea that there is this kind of authority to recognize um for lack of a better term uh the the who's yep. in and who's out to the best of our understanding that doesn't mean that we declare who is and who is not it's saying we have the um we the the corporate local church, um, the like the body the gathered body of believers collectively have the ability to recognize whether or not someone is in the faith or not. Yeah, and we need to. I, I agree with you. I think today because so many people are so timid to judge, we 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 are reluctant to make stronger again as best as we we can tell 
we don't know for sure, yes. but as best we can tell. And the and scriptures give us some guidelines to look for, but we have to be able to delineate, are you one of us or not? There are two types of people in the world, those who are in Adam still and those who are in Christ, those who are not in the church, still unregenerate, those who are in the church regenerate. Everybody falls in one or two of those camps. And it's, a, it's critical we know this because for those of us who fall in the camp of being regenerate, being part of the church, then it, it really speaks to the authority of church leaders, their responsibility. My, my pastor has responsibilities to me as a member. I have responsibilities to the church. Uh, so we have to be able to, mm-hmm. to delineate who's in and who's out, again, for lack of a better word. But then also for us to recognize who yeah. is not regenerate because they need evangelism. So it, this right. is a really important uh, idea, concept that, that many people have gotten away from. And, and here, I think we see a reminder that, that it matters. Right. And, you know, just thinking, just let's camp on there for just one more second, uh, because you said something that's really important with the importance of being able to recognize who is not regenerate. So who is not a um, who is not a believer? In, in Jesus, um, we need to remember that one of the least loving things that we can do for our non-Christian friends and neighbors and family members is to treat them like yep. they're a Christian. Assuming someone is or is not in the faith is a, is a terrible idea yep. because you you set up false expectations you um you set up this idea that um uh, in in some cases you set up this idea that that you can fake it till you make it <laughs> um so if they just behave a certain way long enough you know they'll they'll work their way into the kingdom of god which doesn't work um at all and yes i used work <laughs> intentionally there <laughs> um but it's you're conf- but then you end up confused and you end up confusing them as well. When when we when we talk about this, we we have to remember that being able to distinguish between who is who is and is and is not um, in the faith means that we get to show people the appropriate kind of love. Mm-hmm. So we so if we know who is not a believer, we know who we need to pursue with the gospel from the perspective of encouraging them to repent and believe. When we know who is able, when we have an idea of who is a believer, we know who we pursue with the gospel to grow as believers. All right. So let's go to the next question we see here. And it gets to the question you led off with, uh, kind of my concerns about Thomas as well. Um, was Thomas wrong for needing proof of the resurrection? And again, we see this in verse 25 when he's not there at this first uh, appearance of Jesus to the other disciples. And then uh, he comes back on the scene. I'm sure they say, man, you wouldn't believe what happened. And, and what does he respond? He says, um, you know, I refuse to believe unless I see the marks in his hands and put my fingers into the marks of his nails and into his side, I will never believe. So was he wrong? Not really. Yes and no. This is where we're going to get kind of squishy and be like, yeah, a little bit yes, a little bit no. Um, proof yeah. is a good thing. Proof of our faith is a good thing. 
God gives us ample proof of our faith in Scripture and in the world. Uh, the world itself, and Scripture attests to this, the world itself is evidence that there's a creator. Um, we are not mm-hmm. called on to have what is often called a blind faith, a faith that is devoid of reason and ration, uh, just a blind faith accepting at a no value or, or no evidence and so forth. We are not called on that. We, instead, we're called to have a reasonable faith. It still requires faith. We will never reason somebody to salvation. We have to trust still. There is that step of faith, but it is faith undergirded by ration, reason, evidence. That is, in my estimation, more than enough. So I don't think it's wrong for Thomas to have wanted evidence. And and notice in verse 20, Jesus offers evidence to the other disciples when Thomas wasn't there. So it's almost as he's saying, mm-hmm. here's, here's, here's evidence that I am, I'm Jesus, you can believe. So if it were wrong to have proof on some level, why would Jesus have done that? Some mm-hmm. level of discernment is good. We, we, we don't want to blindly accept whatever and have blind faith. But at the same time, we can want too much. We can go too far and raise too high of a bar. That's the other extreme. And this is where we rigidly yeah. deny whatever we hear because we don't have enough evidence or faith and so forth. So was Thomas wrong to want some kind of evidence? No, but I think we have to recognize here, he definitely went too far. Because notice he doesn't just say, hey, unless I mm-hmm. see, he also adds that touch. So my eyes aren't even good enough. I need that touch, Jesus. And Jesus is going to come back to this in a minute. But then I, I can't move past his, his last parting kind of thought here. Unless this happens... I will never believe. And right there alone is where we can say, all right, you cross the line. You have, yeah. you have created a standard, and then you say, unless the standard's fulfilled and pleases me, I will never believe. And so that right there, Thomas, is where you're my friend. Um, I agree that people should stop calling you Doubting Thomas. But yeah, you made a mistake there. Yeah, it was a bit of a goober move. And uh I mean, but we all do that, right? And like we we get hyperbolic, we overstate things, um, we use definitives like uh, like never or always. And I mean, how many of us have gotten into a fight with somebody and have said, "Well, you always I do never this. do that, Brian. I think you always <laughs> do that." So. <laughs> But you know what we always do on this show? We always ask questions and we try to find answers. So uh, here is the next one, (laughs) which is, um, and we all also always have bad transitions. (laughs) And countless. But we enjoy ourselves. So that's that's something at least that someone appreciates. Anyway, um, the the next question that we should be asking here is, uh, is really flows out of, Thomas's response and this is did uh, the question of Jesus's reaction to him when he showed up a week later also just think about that a week later this is so it's like was Jesus making him sweat <laughs> a little bit there I mean we don't know we don't know but um, I, I love the fact that Jesus wasn't like just like oh hi guys like right after yeah, can you imagine like, the conversation that went on uh, between Thomas and the other disciples for that week <laughs> It's like, seriously. Stop trying to convince me. I already told you. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. I told you never, and I'm digging my heels (laughs) in now. 
Um, don't make me say never, ever. All right. So was Jesus rebuking Tom? Thomas for his struggle to believe. I mean, think about think about those those words that Jesus said in verse 29. Because you've seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I mean, that sounds uh, that sounds pretty stinging here. Um, and it can be tempting to read it that way, but the truth is, is um, probably not. I think I think it's better to say like because I mean you think about verse twenty seven, and what Jesus says there is, put your finger here and look at my hands, reach out your hands and put it into my side, don't be faithless but believe. Think of, a thing to notice in the language is all of that is imperative. Jesus is commanding him to do these things. He's saying he's saying, put your finger in. Look at my hands, reach out and put it into my side. Um, and then I love, and I love, and this is really where there is the closest to a, yeah. a direct rebuke is don't be faithless, but believe. And so that is, so that, and that is um, really important because what it's doing, what Jesus ultimately is doing here is he is helping everyone around to focus on what's best and what's on true what's true and right and glorious and beautiful because remember all of us who are listening to this who are believers and if you're not a believer welcome to this show um i don't know how you got on how you started listening to this but i'm grateful you are um repent and believe the gospel so um what i would say is um, is we all have to remember that none of us have physically seen Jesus. None of us had the experience that Thomas had or the 12 had or the extended group of disciples um, or any of these folks. None, we, we do not get to see him until we enter the new, uh, uh, enter his presence. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that our faith is any less genuine than theirs. Um, remember, Pete, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So the, the inference in all of this uh, seems to be that Thomas should have been able to believe with less evidence. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that or lecture him on it. He is glad that Thomas believed. He's genuinely glad about that. But he has that future mindset that, again, we talked about a little bit before, that John puts forward so strongly in his gospel um, that evidence evidence requirements are going to have to change, for example. Um, we just talked about that. Um, and people are not going to be able to see and touch Jesus. The disciple and the, so the disciples are going to have to help them believe without those kinds of options. Yeah, and that's why Thomas he he couldn't let that pass. I mean, if Thomas is digging in his heels saying, "I will never believe unless I touch Jesus and see Him," how would he disciple others? Because he he needs to be changed in his thinking to no, I need less. I should need less than evidence than that. So yeah, I see here, and and by the way, I think we need to point out there's no the scripture does not record that Thomas actually 
touched Jesus. Um, all we see is Jesus invites him, and then Thomas mm-hmm. has a declaration of, of faith. Um, so I think when we read this carefully, again, I think we go in biased because of doubting Thomas, and we read in a strong rebuke here. And I think you're right. There, there really isn't one. There is this inference of Thomas, you, you didn't take the best approach. There's a better way that you could have taken, and maybe even should have. But we also see Christ in his mercy condescending to Thomas and saying, okay, fine, if that's what you need, then touch, touch my wounds so that you wouldn't believe. Um, and then taking him, moving him and the others to this better, loftier position that we've talked about. You, you should not need to touch people coming next. Your future, the next generation of, of disciples will not have this. They will have to believe apart from that. And so if everybody has the same thought you have, I will never believe, everything ends right here. So it's more of Jesus positioning the better way rather than really rebuking Thomas and saying, oh, you're just terrible. How, how could you? What's wrong with you? All right. So let's, let's wrap up this conversation the way that we like to do, which is talking about the passage from a discipleship perspective. What kind of guidance can we offer those listening um, who are working through this passage with someone else? I think the first thing is probably the, the bigger picture here that we really haven't spent much time focusing on because all these other uh, parts of it that have been important. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the, the big idea here is Jesus preparing his disciples for the ministry, the mission that he's been given them and that they will have to follow through. Uh, that's the great commission there, John's version, what we just talked about, you know, the, the inference of why Jesus wanted to, to point out that there's a better way to have faith. Um, and so as we are discipling others and we're looking at this passage together, it's, it's a chance for us to remind them and ourselves that we have to take our mission seriously. Um, we have been sent likewise and, and we can find great comfort in, in the fact that we've been spent or sent rather in the, the power of the spirit, just like the disciples were originally. And that we too have to do what we just talked about. We have to help point others to Jesus provide the evidence that is there, but ultimately they need to believe in faith without ever seeing Christ face to face or touching him physically, that we have had to do that. And we are making other disciples who will have to do that. So this passage is is an opportunity for us to reset our mission, even if that is a newer believer that you're discipling. If he or she is a believer, he or she is on mission. The mission begins immediately. We can and should start making disciples from day one. And so we can help those we're discipling remember this from this passage. Another thing that we need to remember is the importance of church membership and really just how much it matters. And so this is not this is definitely not the main point of the text at all, but it is something that's there. And we, we talked about that a little bit, and we actually talked about it a fair bit. But um, uh, but we can't ignore that. And so the authority of disciples to accept re- and reject people, others as part of the church, uh, we, what that means is, is that if that is true, and if that's actually, and if that's actually part of our calling as believers, um, again, for that purpose of mission and growing in and growing one another in Christ in the appropriate way, showing, um, proclaiming the gospel in the right kind of tact and the right tone to the right person at the right time, 
Um, that means that we need to take that role very, very seriously. Our role as church members, it means that we don't, we don't take our, um, uh, our membership in a church or our attendance in a church as, as a spectator type of type of thing. We're not going like you would to a movie or to, um, you know, any sort of sporting event, um, you know, I said that very convincingly because I, as Brian knows, I don't have a sports and, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but if we need to take that seriously, that means that the reason that we need to take it seriously is because it matters. There's an expectation. There's a weight to being part of the church. And so we, as, uh, we who are not church leaders formally, need to take that as seriously as church leaders need to take both roles as well. So all of us together are the church and it's not one person's job or the others to, to make disciples. It's all of us together doing that. Yeah, it's good. I think a third thing we see here that we can help as we disciple others is that we, we can't miss what Jesus provides to his followers in this, this passage. Notice three times Jesus says, peace be with you. And uh, th- while that was a common greeting in that day, you know, s- flip through the Gospels, you, you don't see that used tons. Uh, even in John, after the resurrection, the only three times Jesus had a couple other conversations, he doesn't use that phrase or it's not recorded. But three times it's recorded in this section, peace be with you, that Jesus says, and then notice in verse 20, the first time when Jesus comes to the disciples, they're, they're overjoyed. And so you think about this peace and joy, peace from God. What did, what did Christ provide through the cross and the resurrection? Peace with God. For those of us who trust in God, we are moved from being enemies to his adopted children, as we know from Romans 5 and other passages. So we have been given peace with God, so it's fitting that, that Christ is lifting this up. And then joy. And so we think about, as we're discipling, those two should be hallmarks of our lives, and especially in these crazy days that we're in. And everything in the world seems like it's been turned upside down. There is ample reason for us to, to worry about things, but we've been given peace, not only with God and ending the hostilities, but that peace also has another level of an internal peace, an internal confidence and trust that whatever happens, God is good. So peace is a amazing gift from God through Christ, and then joy, that we live with joy. Again, no matter what's going on, doesn't mean glib happiness, doesn't mean plaster a grin on your face, even when you're miserable. It means that you have an understanding positionally that you are right with God, that you've been forgiven, and there's this joy that often can and should result in happiness that we feel, but Joy can happen without that happiness as well. Joy should be constant. So peace and joy are two critical marks, I believe, of the church that we could make a bigger difference in our world if we demonstrated these more, if we live them out with one another and with the world. Peace and joy. Man, that's a good couple of words to end this discussion on. So let's, uh, let's call it there. And uh, thanks for chatting about this. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. 
and for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.